This is the Mobile Tech Podcast, brought to you by worldpodcasts.com. Now here's your host, Tank Girl, Miriam Joie. Brought to you by Infineon. Hi and welcome to the Mobile Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Joie, and today is November 1st. 2023, and I'm here at Infineon headquarters in Silicon Valley to talk about October Tech, which is an event that took place here last week. And I've got Adrian Mikowajczak here with me, and I've got Kim Lee with me again. This is part two of a two-part interview conversation basically we're having about D&D, we decide to call it. Decarbonization and digitalization, these are two big efforts for Infineon. It's been going on for a while. We talked about it with them last year. So in the last episode, we kind of took the temperature, found out where you guys were at, how things had evolved over the year, and kind of some of the problems that are being solved and how it affects your business and your consumers, which are other businesses, and of course, the end consumer, you know, people watching and listening to the show. So this episode, we're going to talk about some of the demos we saw because that's actually what I'm honestly the most excited about. Getting my hands on things is always... So those of you on Patreon watching the video version are probably going to get quite a treat this time because you're going to get to see a bunch of things we're going to show. Those listening, we'll try to describe it best we can. But... Let's start with uh, with you, Adrian. What was the one thing? There's, I think we're talking about four things. What was what's the one thing that really kind of was like, woo? So I think uh, you know we kind of hinted at it last time when we talked about the solar inverter technology and how that's gone forward. And so I figured I'd go a little more in depth than we did last time. Please do. Okay. So I think what we kind of talked about is how since about 2008, if you take something that was a solar inverter then and you look at what we're showing through our customers on the floor today, what they've been able to achieve with, with our devices. So our devices have evolved a lot. We started applying technology like silicon carbide and GAN to our power power converter technology. Uh, you know those memes on, on the internet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where you, you, you know, need more cowbell? I did one that says, need more GAN. Everything needs more GAN. <laughs> See, this is how nerdy my audience is. Like, this is the level of, okay. So you really liked the, the keynote. I like, the, I like the, yes, the GAN is my thing. So carry on with the GAN. So in the keynote, the, uh, if you recall, the, uh, the comment was, we're making history again. Oh, see, there you go. That was good. But but going back, you know, this device level technology, especially like on the silicon carbide and the solar inverter, I mean, that's how we got from, or there's a key piece in how we got from this 90 watts per kilogram kilogram to 3,000 watts per kilogram and 97% efficiency, 99% efficiency. That that was enabled in many ways by silicon carbide. And so that's something we're really proud of. And, and, you know, across the show, we show this again and again with different kinds of different kinds of devices, you know, here taking a, a, you know, a PD controller for your power, for your mobile phone, getting the conversion of that up to 96% in that case, getting, and that was with GAN, getting these other things up and up and up and continue to drive that. How much, uh, how much of your work goes into the average PD charger that we use for our devices today? Is Infineon very present in this? Yeah, I mean, so we'll make, for example, the, again, the, the key element that drives a lot of these architectures is switching of on and off of power, right? right? So the that's, switching technology. That switch, those switches are our GAN switches as well as our, our diodes and our other devices as well. And so, even, even down to the MOSFETs with low RDS on. I mean, the, mm-hmm. these are the things that enable the, even as simple as, you know, the, the MOSFET technologies that we have are, are, are state of the art in which they are looking at, you know, better, a lower RDS on, 
better parasitics, I guess, if you will, to have more efficient uh, power conversion through the, through the line. You know what, actually, I was just going to add one thing. You know, it's kind of interesting from your audience perspective. You know, there's the efficiency in the sense of what you pay for at the end of the day. You know, right. how much should I spend on my electric bill? But like even on things like chargers, there's another aspect here. Sometimes the size of these chargers are not limited by the electronics. They're actually limited by the power. They have to the dissipate. Thermals, yeah. yes. And so as you make them more efficient, yeah. you have an opportunity to actually shrink them further. So, you know, if you're talking about your travel, and you're planning your travel. And you carry less stuff and it's exactly, less weight. And yeah. the plane is more efficient because it's less weight on the plane. Do you see now? <laughs> no, but the point is Anchor is a, is a good friend of the podcast, the company that makes chargers. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and you know, I use their chargers pretty much exclusively. And it's incredible how much smaller GAN has made their chargers. And, you know, I, I, I think that's the other thing. A lot of my audience kind of knows this intuitively, but, you know, you guys are kind of deep in this. And I, my background being electrical engineering, I get it too. It's like so much of what we do today is switching power. You know, it doesn't really matter what you're looking at, whether it's like an inverter for your car or like PWM dimming for displays. Like a big yep. topic right now in consumer tech is people are becoming more and more sensitive to low light flicker on their displays. and bumping up the PWM on the on the displays is becoming a selling point. Like people are actually looking at what's your PWM dimming. Without increasing the power because you have Correct. Yeah. 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 And so we're the, I think the state of the art is four kilohertz right now. And uh, the average good displays one kilohertz and bad displays <clears throat> Apple. <clears throat> 200 hertz. <laughs> so you know, I mean they'll get there. It's not that Apple makes the display at Samsung anyway, but like some companies, it, this is not necessarily tied to the display technology, but it's interesting because I think that, you know, PWM controllers are a dime a dozen for you guys, right? Just you probably do a million of those for everything from thermostats to whatever. The point I'm making is that not my audience, because I think they know enough, but I think the average person out there has no idea how much switching is going on in their lives. Oh, I mean, yeah, if you, if I mean, the, the perfect example of that is just think back, well, I guess, what, 15, 20 years ago, and you would get those chargers in the wall, and there were these big, heavy bricks. Bricks, had the big bricks, yeah. <laughs> I just call them bricks. All that has been replaced by switching. And yeah. so now, and if you look at power tools, for example, you look at the older power tools. I mean, there were the AC ones, they were kind of big. But then the first ones that came out, those potentially had transformers in them and other kinds of things. And the way they've shrunk down is they've put in more and more and more switching. Yeah. And we live in a world that's fully switched. I love it. So, Kim, tell us a little more about this other product. I think that's really interesting. You know, we talked briefly about the benefits for solar inverters of shrinking size and more efficiency, right? Like practical applications that can prevent is what we talked about. But you have this one thing here with the stethoscope that's really fascinating to me. Because, you know, my background is DSP, so a lot of it is okay. audio processing. Okay. And audio processing today is heavily improved by AI. In fact, this recording right now that you're all listening to, my audience is here, is going to go through AI processing to remove noise and and other imperfections. And uh, you won't hear it, the difference. It'll sound way cleaner to you. And I think that that combined with better hardware, like MEMS mics, and that are much more sensitive, have essentially no moving parts, they're solid state, I think are a revolution in audio and audio, you know, it's pretty broad. Like, you know, I'm including piezo sensors in there. I'm including, you know, low frequency acoustic stuff. 
So tell us a little bit of what Infineon is doing in that field and how that translates into this really cool stereoscope. Do you want to show it real quick here? Sure. So men's microphone technologies that we have, we have our own MEMS uh, capabilities and, and we're mm-hmm. trying to always get to our state-of-the-art specifications. The big important one for microphones is um, SNR, being able to- Signal to noise ratio. To, to be able to do that. Also, uh, AOP, acoustic overload point, mm-hmm. being able to compromise. It's, 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 it's like a fighting parameter where every time you try to increase the um, SNR, your AOP has to suffer. But right. you know, we were trying to find a happy medium that, that makes it work. We're breaking boundaries by exceeding 70, 75, even 80 uh, dB SNR. Wow. Which is- uh, It's pretty impressive. Yeah, right now, what you have on your uh, laptops, for example, is in the low 60s, if not high 50s. Yeah. Right? So uh, mobile phones are getting into the low, the mid to, to low uh, 60s to now it may be in the high 60s with yeah. the, good or the better phones. But we're looking at uh, next generation being into 70 plus 80 uh, dB SNR microphones. And basically, that, that one has a bunch of our electronics from our uh, PSOC microcontrollers to a uh, BLE a chip that we have in there. Enabling right, Bluetooth, this. yeah. So and you even have a, you can actually connect uh, a cable there. Yeah, a, an actual a cable if where the doctors, it, yeah. yeah. So, and it's a USB cool. charger as well, so power delivery so with the USB. Like this, yeah, just basically chest. put it on the chest and, and then demonstrate it. It listens to your uh, heartbeat. heartbeat and... And, uh, very, very cool. And it's got some buttons on it. And uh, yeah, this is like... Yeah, but if you look at our IoT, right, as a whole, I mean, this is where you know, all these things, Infineon just keeps driving forward, right? Like I said, from Bluetooth to Wi-Fi to our microcontrollers to our sensors. I mean, this is a, a, a use case where multiple of these things are needed, but I mean, they're... It's everywhere, yeah. right? And as other, you said, it's and, not just it's not just. In other senses, where we're very focused on not just in the consumer and smart home space, but automotive space. I mean, we have uh, sixty gigahertz RF sensors in uh, automotive sensing. Before we touch on that, I want to kind of finish on the mics, just because we talked about this on the last show a little bit. But um, microphones that are used in external application and vehicles. You know, in the same way as electric cars now have an external speaker that sure. plays a nice little angel sound when you're moving below a certain speed so that, you know, pedestrians can hear an electric car, which is so quiet. Uh, we now have microphones that you've developed that can be mounted externally, which is an incredible challenge because the acoustic environment is insane and the environment... Saying, it's the yeah. environment that's insane, yeah. <laughs> Right? Um, so I'm actually interested in that. Um, you know, it's also funny because I made fun of Apple for the PWM displays earlier in the dimming, but they have the best microphones in the industry on all their devices. I don't know what they're using, but it's... Uh, the best. I could actually use this laptop's microphone if this better sure microphone was defective. And probably between that and AI, I get a really good recording today here. And, you know, that was not possible just even two or three years ago, which, yeah. you know, between the AI processing and the better microphones. So I'm particularly excited about, you know, what you guys are doing in automotive because... You know, we always think of visual sensing, but when you're driving, a human driver, you're constantly listening to stuff. Yeah, you might be listening to your tunes, but you have the ability to detect that siren through your music, you know, up to a certain level anyway. And that's something that inherently you do as a human. Yeah. But because you have incredibly good sensors. So, you know, you can add all the processing you want to a modern microphone. It's much harder if the microphone isn't good enough to yeah, start exactly. with. Well, I think, and I think, it's also, it has to be environmentally waterproof and so forth. If you, you put the microphones outside, it's, it's, it's exposed to harsh environments, meaning that uh, yeah. you have to be able to have the same SNR level in an outside environment that's 
uh, shield it with whatever technology that's able to keep it waterproof. And right, you immediately decrease in. the performance of your microphone simply by the environmental protection you apply, exactly. and it just a, becomes exactly. a big mess. I was so. going to say, this is one of those things that, you know, one thinks of like microprocessors is always moving and getting better and those kinds of things. But as, as Kim mentioned, microphone technology by itself is continuously pushing new bounds and evolving and getting better and better and better. And these things are all trade-offs, exactly like you said. You put some sort of uh, environmental block in there, and as you just said, oh, geez. My signal noise got worse, right? And so now I've got to compensate for that some other way, somewhere in the mem structure, do something else, somewhere in the in the noise cancellation structure. And and I'm very amazed by just how much over the over the years the microphones, as you mentioned, just keep getting better and better while the requirements keep getting harder and harder and harder. Yeah. It's very cool. So sensor is obviously a big part of what you and you just mentioned the 60 gigahertz radar. And that is, you know, I saw the demo at CES, it was really cool. It's being used in today's cars. I believe Volvo might, might not be using a sensor, but I know they are, like for practical example. You are having a sensor in the back of the car that, or I think it's generally in the front looking at the back, to, that sees if somebody is left behind. If you've left a child in your seat, it can detect that using the 60 gigahertz radar, right? Yeah, it's a, it can be mounted either in, in the cabin, either front or back, but able to look in the back cabin to make sure that they it's able to detect respiratory rate. It's detecting presence. So if you have, let's say, a, a big object like a like a dummy, let's let's say a mannequin, yeah. you know, for very simply uh, put, you know, it'll, it would show up on a, on a normal pressure sensor on a car seat right. or whatever. Yeah. But we don't it's care about it. Breathing. It's not breathing. We don't care about <laughs> it as much, right? So it's 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 a more intelligent sensor. And this is what we're doing. Is is you know, with part of that whole digitalization concept, we are making electronics more intelligent, sensors more capable, and making sensors intelligent by adding those those capabilities and finding these use cases that people gravitate towards like you know safety uh, automotive safety better uh, smarter homes smarter uh, buildings and that type of thing uh, where you know these these are just enabled by a lot of uh, cool electronics as well as um, cool processing that goes along let with me it. let me add to that because like for example the radar for presence detection it's it's one of the demos we had but I think you know it's not just a different way of doing it it's actually fundamentally improved way potentially of doing it in the sense that if you think about it, if you just did a pressure sensor in your seat, right? there's a couple of things you've got to do. I and mean, we already mentioned that it's not going to pick up breathing. But even aside from that, by putting a pressure sensor in your seat, somehow you've got to wire it up so yeah. now you've got four different or five different or how many seats you've got, different pressure sensors you've got to put. You've got to run the wires. You've got to get all that data back to a central hub. Here, we're moving that to a single sensor yep. that's then monitoring the cabin. Which gives flexibility to the manufacturer for placement, which, you know, lets them optimize the cabin for soundproofing, for acoustics, for music, for comfort for materials i mean though like just to list the benefits to the end consumer to you guys listening is you know just a better a much nicer interior to your car that still gives you the functionality you want and it weighs less so mm -hmm. since we're talking about decarbonization <laughs> digitalization we're digitalizing so we can decarbonize i'm just particularly excited about radar stuff because at those Gigahertz frequencies, you, you, as you said, you can detect breathing, you, you can detect heart rate possibly. And, you know, that becomes, it's kind of a little spooky in a way, right? Because it's almost like a camera that can see through things. But it becomes a sensor that eventually by just changing some of the software, 
you can reuse for new applications. You know, right now, you maybe you can detect, you know, humans and pets, say, right? Now, modern cars like EVs, especially, you can have like the pet mode where the car can stay running and the AC can be on. So it's not as big of an issue. But obviously, you know, there might be other applications in the future where we have these sensors in the car and we're like, oh, hey, you know, what if we uh, used it for the alarm system in some clever way, right? Like, you know, uh, we have cameras, but maybe, you know, they don't work so well in low light. So maybe we can have a thing where with processing the, the radar data, we actually can realize that a door just got open and a window just got broken or something. Yeah, you know yeah I mean, the, actually a use case came up where, like pickup trucks where people like like in the construction industry to have valuable tools, valuable equipment in their truck beds, they want to be able to monitor safety as well. So an application came up where, uh, you know, obviously a camera's there, they'll see uh, you know, a nice 4K view of, of the truck bed, but that draws a lot of power right. uh, and, and consumes a lot of battery life. So what can be done to say, okay, I, I see an intruder. I don't you know, obviously see the, the details of the intruder, but I see a presence that's there that could be concerning. Now I'm going to go turn on the camera. Now I'll turn on the camera. And, and now it's yeah. going to see, okay, yeah. okay I, I, am I seeing something that's threatening or, or not? No, for sure. But, of course, the, the future construction workers and contractors will have all their tools in the front, as we all know, because of electric <laughs> cars, right? No, but it's a good point. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. It's like you're developing this technology, and you end up with like all these ancillary uses that we weren't originally intended. Yeah. So, yeah. Maybe I add to that because radar is an interesting one because it is a bit of a challenge to understand radar. It's not the way we normally normally think of the world, you know, in these right. polar coordinates and these kinds of things. But but I think the other thing that was cool that we launched uh, last week, actually, was this um, sensing as a service, too. So huh. now we've, we've started thinking about, and going back to your discussion about software, how do we enable customers to uh, kind of get there quickly? and efficiently without having to become experts in that single sensor down to the nitty gritty, right? Yeah. And so that's an initiative we, we, we're, we're very excited about. It's yeah, I mean, RF data, so. RF itself is, is, you know, to some it's black magic, right? But it, not really, but it is very complex to implement and use, to integrate. So we have to provide a solution that's simple enough for any consumer product uh, manufacturer that is gravitating towards having a more intelligent sensor to enable their electronics, whatever it be, whether it's lighting or whatever it is, to use it. So we have to provide that solution from the sensor itself, enabling from intelligence standpoint by having the right algorithms, the right software, and, and it basically as a reference design so that they can copy and paste that design into their product and accelerate their R&D, their, their design, and, and go to market faster. Well, on that note, I think we should wrap up. Actually, this is a good way to segue, actually, because we talked about software and how it's so critical on top of the hardware, but also how the evolution of the hardware is so critical in the last segment. So, you know, if you get a chance to listen to last week's episode, the first 15 minutes or so are kind of a more global view of what Infineon is doing in decarbonization and digitalization and I'm glad you tuned in for this week's show. Thank folks for uh, being here and telling us about these great demos. I got to experience okay. them and I really enjoyed it. So thanks so much again. Cool. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah. And folks, I'm back with Sean. Hi, Sean. How are you? Oh, really excited to get to talk with you today, Miriam. I appreciate <laughs> the invitation to join you. Absolutely. So you ride for RCR Wireless, Sean Kinney, everyone. So listen, 
it's kind of been an interesting couple of weeks in the compute world, right? Like Apple, I felt like was maybe trolling Qualcomm when they announced their scary fast event while we were in Hawaii together. And uh, I don't think they were. It's not their style. I think they might have opportunistically waited for the keynote to end at Qualcomm to make the announcement. But people who think that they rushed to make that video that they broadcast on Monday night are nuts. Like th that was prepared weeks ahead, right? Absolutely. Apple doesn't rush anything, uh, you know, to put out there that Oh, they've thrown together this event and what the commercial availability and pre-order setups for a, a brand new product. Like, mm, that's not exactly right. I think uh, your comment <laughs> about opportunistically timing the announcement, I think that's probably exactly right. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they had it in their back pocket. And then when they found out the summit was happening, they instead of doing the maybe eight days of heads up to the media, they did like, oh, well, well six days we'll have to do this time kind of thing, right? Um, so M3s. So I'm a big Mac user. I have a bunch of Silicon Macs. I'm actually recording on my old Core i5 iMac right now. That thing is so ready to retire. But the thing that I was hoping would happen based on the rumors was like a 27 or 30 inch iMac. We didn't get that. And I think I'm about to bite the bullet, Sean. I'm about to just go to Portland, Oregon, where I can buy things tax-free on my way between my many drives up and down the West Coast and buy myself a purple iMac. God damn it. <laughs> I love an iMac, and I was so hopeful for a 27-inch version. Um, I use the, the Apple Studio display right now, and as much as I like the specs on that iMac, I cannot stand that it would be close but not the same size as my primary display that just i can't go back to anything smaller than this like it's not like i can go up maybe a bit like 30 but i don't think i can go down to 24 but i might just have to because this thing is such a dog you know like i, I pull out my macbook air all the time to work at home and you know in the old days you could turn these imacs into a display that had display target mode and that's gone now. And it's it was firmware disabled. That's the worst part. You can't go back to an old OS version with it and just make that happen. The only way you can use this beautiful 5K panel that I have in this iMac is to gut it and put like a little, you know, LCD control board in there with an HDMI input. There are a dime a dozen on eBay and on, uh, on Amazon. You can buy these retrofit kits. But that feels so kind of wrong to me. Like, why not have this target display mode? That's, I mean, that's antithetical to Apple design for me. And I mean, I, I'll take it one step further. Like my iPhones, I don't put cases on them because all of the time and effort that went into designing that phone, right? I'm, I'm not going to spoil it. I'm not going to ruin it. But I, gosh, I watched my mother do her taxes on an iPad Pro with a uh, keyboard attachment. It was terrible to watch so i think in terms of this imac i am gonna buy one not for me though yeah i might do this i might try it out i might just go you know let's live with it and see how it is and maybe this you know performance on the m3 will get me right so let's talk about that right so it's been hard to kind of understand other than reading you know people's analyses after the fact that are kind of more into the chip stuff um what the performance improvement really is versus like an m1 and especially an m2 chip now of course there's the, also the m3 pro and max chips 
And uh, but I'm more interested in the M3 because I think it's the big disruptor here, right? So what is your take? Like, what would you tell the average person that walks up to you and say, hey, you work in tech journalism, those M3 iMacs or the new M3 MacBook Pro, I want to buy one. And what kind of speed improvement can I reasonably see? I bought an original M1, you know? See, I think you hit it right there. Um, and it was it was evident in Apple's presentation, the comparison of M3 performance versus M1 performance. You know, that's who they're targeting for the upgrade. And just to, you know, personalize it, I've got a MacBook Pro that's an M1 and it has the touch bar, which I love. Maybe we can talk about that separately. <laughs> I'm probably going to upgrade this machine to an M3. I have a MacBook Air that's an M2. And I'm not going to break my upgrade uh, cycle for an M2 to M3. I just don't, I don't see the the pressing need. That said, I'm kind of full of shit. So if I can get a decent <laughs> resale price for my M2 machine, probably going to buy that M3. But in theory and devoid of any externalities, I would not upgrade my M2 right now. But you would consider upgrading potentially an, an, a really early M1. You've had an M1 since 2020. Like you bought the original MacBook Air, for example, and you want a little more, but you're not really ready to go like full on pro. You want a better display, for example, maybe look at the uh, MacBook Pro base M3, right? Um, question though, I think it's not really a question. It's more a statement, really. Like if you are an Intel right now and you're thinking of upgrading either the iMac or a MacBook Pro or even a MacBook Air at this point, this is it, right? Like you, you're, you're good. Like you, you go for it. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, this is a super performant, uh, silicon option that they've put out. It is just fully software optimized for the hardware. Things could be a, a great experience. And I think if you're coming off of an Intel device, you're going to notice it. It's going to be a, a big leap in terms of how it feels when you use it for sure. Can we have a little rant for a second about the fact that they didn't upgrade the uh, keyboard and mouse and and uh, trackpad to uh, USB Type C and it's still Lightning? I'm vexed by that, and I know like I know Tim Cook is an operational wizard. He's trying to maximize you know the flow here, and he's probably got stock of that stuff. He's trying to get rid of right, or or the molds and the manufacturing line are still good enough in terms of you know, quality that he wants to wear it out a bit more and has more manufactured. But I am so annoyed with that. Like, it just feels so wrong right now. It, I, I mean, standardization is is how we get to scale. And I love to see it. And I'm glad that they're eventually going to get everything on that USB-C. But yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I've got a perfectly good magic mouse here with a lightning port that I'm Me absolutely too. going to replace when there's it's a USB-C. Look, I have to say, though, as much as the charging port in the bottom is ridiculous, right, I, I still feel like this um, is, a, for me, a good mouse. A lot of people don't like the ergonomics, but I love this, the fact that it has a, a, essentially a trackpad for scrolling. I have not used another mouse, from even from big manufacturers like Logitech, where I feel as comfortable sideways scrolling, like left to right, which I do a lot in audio and in video editing. You know, now a lot of people are saying, just get a trackpad. And I have a, a magic trackpad as well. Um, but I feel like at the desktop, I'm happier with a mouse. On a laptop, I'm totally comfortable with a trackpad all the time. The thing about this mouse, though, compared to the previous one that was two double A's, right? 
even though it charges in the most ridiculous way, and I literally have another <laughs> mouse that I keep charged that I swap. I have two mice. I have two magic mice. Um, in fact, the other one is the tr is the double A version because that way, like those double A's, you know, I turn it off because it's an actual off switch, and they just last forever. Uh, I I just think it's battery life is not bad on this rechargeable. Like it lasts months. So if they could just put the port at the bottom on the side somehow, like bottom side, you know, like hidden under this lip right here, like just hide it down there, and 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 we can still use the mouse or probably you'd want to be it at the top so you could use the mouse but anyway i digress i had to rant about that sorry <laughs> no i understand i think that's a very valid feedback and you know maybe the uh, the design team is listening but i i imagine based on what i've seen on twitter that they're they're well aware of the uh, complaints in this department i think so too and they knew it was coming they're just like yeah. screw it we're just going to finish this run Okay, so we talked about the iMac. I wanted a bigger one, but I really have no complaints about anything else on it. Like like anybody else is complaining. I'd, I'd see what the issue would be. Like, yeah, you want more ports built in, but it's got the gigabit Ethernet on the power adapter. I actually think that's pretty brilliant. The majority of people are going to be on Wi-Fi. And, you know, you don't, you're not going to plug anything down there. And if you have the base model, you don't get that anyway. So, you know, whatever. The thing that is vexing to me, since we're still on just M3 right now, is with the MacBook Pro M3, the base model, has one less port. That's okay. I, I get it too. Because it's the number of, you know, whatever USB-C Thunderbolt ports it can support at the chip level. But 8 gigs of RAM... Like, okay, before you go answer this, I want to preamble this. I'm having this kind of active conversation on threads right now with someone who's arguing with me that eight gigs is not enough. And I'm like, look, eight gigs is not enough on an Intel Mac. Eight gigs is not enough on a Apple Silicon Mac if you are a heavy, heavy user. But 90% of the people out there really don't need more than eight gigs of RAM. But this is a pro model. That's why I'm making the argument. Like... I think for the MacBook Air, 8 gigs is fine. I think potentially for the iMac, 8 gigs is fine, but 16 gigs should be the pro. At 1600, it should be. I was struck by the range because I think you can get a fully, fully specced out I M3 did it. Max I, I, Pro. I looked it. You got it. 128. You can get 128 gigs and That's 8 a, terabytes. a lot. Yeah, I mean that's a lot. That's maybe and too much. I don't really know what I'd be doing with with that, but uh, I mean you would you would know it when you see it. But yeah, I mean eight for for Apple's market, eight is probably right. Um, and you maybe see a little bit of it in the price point, but like yeah, they could they could stand to make sixteen kind of the the floor, I think, and and everybody would be happy. We wouldn't be having this conversation. For $1,600 and Pro Model, I feel like they should have kind of done that. Probably $1,649, just give us, throw us a bone. This is a Pro Model. Like, my argument, or I don't want to say it's an argument, but the conversation on threads we're having right now is I'm saying, no, you don't need more than 8 gigs. Those people are saying 8 gigs is unacceptable. You've never used an Intel Mac versus a Silicon Mac, an Apple Silicon. Uh, statistically, no people will have an issue with this. Uh, the, I know the people that had run up against that that amount of RAM are are very few and far between. But hey, I'm curious: have you gotten a shipment date uh, for your? So I never bought it like a seven grand. Like I configured uh, it to see where I would okay. go. Right? No, I don't have a shipment date. I, um, some of the folks I know that are 
friends of ours, journalists, have ordered pretty high-end models like the YouTube creators. And mm -hmm. uh, they, they're switching from M1 MacBook Pros to the M3. And a lot of them have only gone for the Macs. Uh, sorry, a lot of them only gone for the Pro, not the Max, first of all. And a lot of them have kind of gone for like, I think uh, 36 gigs, whatever that, that middle tier is of RAM, and then lots of storage because they need it for their videos. But, um, and it seems to be inexpensive, but not crazy. The Max style version is basically about seven grand. Uh, and that's 120 gigs of RAM, M3 Max, and eight terabytes. Oh my God. That's actually, honestly, not that much money. Like when you think about how much you could spec on MacBook Pro a few years back, I think you could go up to nine grand at one point on these Core i9 Macs back in the day. Do you remember those? Oh yeah. So. Yeah, I think I think the people that are buying that machine, I know I know someone who bought the fully specced out, and he does not have a shipment date yet. But I mean. For him, that's a business expense and a very easily justifiable business yeah. expense. That's probably Absolutely. who that's for. Hey, but wait a minute, Touch Bar. I mean, we all knew that this was coming, but I mean, <sighs> I look, I, I I give way more PowerPoint presentations than I'd care to to do, <laughs> and and that I'd care to admit. And if you take away all the other Touch Bar functionality, slide advancement is so nice on a Touch Bar. And I've never used it on a on. On a, on a for a slide advancement, so I don't know. Tell us about it. Well, I mean, it's just, it's, you don't have to have a peripheral. If you're recording the presentation, you don't have to see that mouse movement lingering over the advance button. If you're trying to advance from your keyboard, you don't have to have that moment of panic where you press forward and nothing happens because you've got a nice little thumbnail image of, you know, about seven slides across the touch bar and you can just go from one to the other and, it doesn't show up on your camera and you don't have to mess with your mouse and you don't have to touch your keyboard. It's super helpful. Wow, that sounds pretty awesome. Uh, I will be frank with you. I'm glad the touch bar is finally dead. I, I, you know, I come from old school development, game development, programming, and to me, the function role is literally something I use not for volume and, and brightness. I actually do that, but I have it set to use function key for that. Function, mm -hmm. volume, function on all my Macs and all my PCs and all my Linux machines. Because for me, when I hit F5, it's compile, okay? Like <laughs> I, I cannot, and it cannot be a virtual key. I, it's, it has to, it's, such, it's such a physical experience. And that's where I'm stuck. It, I, I think the touch bar was a good idea, but they, they made a bunch of strategic mistakes. The first one was, not having the escape key on the initial touch bar. Like the escape key is not like a developer key. This is a key you touch a lot. You're in full screen mode on YouTube, escape comes back. Like things, you don't want that to be a virtual key. Um, the other ones could be argued, especially the way Apple's been going, you know, very more like uh, iPad, iPhone-like with the experience on the Mac. But I think they've taken a step back on that too, right? The pros are now thicker. They, they are, I think that they were trying to be in, introduce something new, but then when they got the feedback it wasn't working, they kind of stuck with it in this very Apple job-esque way. And I think now they're back to listening to their customers, right? And I think that's why I 
very happy they've gotten rid of it. What I think they need to do is in the same way as continuity lets you can seamlessly use, you know, your iPhone or whatever device, like in the case of the camera continuity is really amazing. But why not have your Apple Watch or even your phone, any phone, maybe have a continuity feature for Android so that you can do the slide presentations uh, you know, uh, like it, have that that thumbnail. Just you know, of course, you still have to hold something in your hand. But like, I'm just thinking, like, there's possibly maybe um, who is that company that does the uh, the 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 little accessories that have little programmable iconic buttons? Like, you know, like you you could have one of the, like like a strip bar like that too that you can just add as an add-on to your computer. I think there's a use for that kind of concept, like a micro display, but I think replacing the function key bar with it was the wrong thing to do. Putting on top would have been the right thing to do, in my opinion. It was a bold experiment uh, that we can officially bid goodbye yeah, to because it's you, over. Yeah, but you're sad. You loved it. Well, this machine's still in good shape, and for running PowerPoint advancement, I can keep it around for... Uh, Probably 18 more months. So is this the M1 13-inch Pro you got then? That's when correct. Two? Yeah. Yeah, so look, I think if you need love the touch bar, go buy yourself an M2 13-inch <laughs> Pro from Amazon on sale right now. Uh, it's a great machine. There's no doubt about it. Um, my only gripe with it was the uh, the touch bar. But does it have the better keyboard? It, they've fixed the keyboard on it, right? It's got the new updated... Uh, magic keys or whatever like it doesn't have the the butterfly anymore right they fixed yeah that. that's yes okay that, that is that is repaired on this one i think that was uh because that was another episode of apple madness uh and the thermals right like making machines that thin with intel chips in them was a bad idea back in the day so i love that now they have the much more efficient and powerful Apple Silicon on thicker machines that can even absorb that heat better and manage it better with fans and whatever. I think it's fascinating how Apple's really been listening, except for the freaking 27-inch iMac. <laughs> give, them a, give them another year. Maybe we'll see. <laughs> we'll find out. Um, so yeah, the, that's one thing that stood out for me, the, the base RAM on that M3. So then the M3 Max and the M3 Pro What's your take? Do you, do you want to talk about what's your impression as to where these kind of fit in? If you had to draw a graph of like performance zero to hundred, right? Where hundred is like I don't know the 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 fastest M chip and zero is like maybe the M one base, right? Like the the, mm -hmm. the one the the slightly uh, reduced performance one that only having has lesser GPUs, the one they put on the original base MacBook Air. Where do you place, you know, all these chips? Because like I, I need to see that graph because I'm not able to picture where the M2 Max and M2 Pro and M2 Ultra fit in this, and the M1 Pro and M1 Max and M1 Ultra. Yeah, I mean, definitely a lot of emphasis on the GPU enhancements, right? And now kind of support for for dual screen, which like why was that not already in there? But that's a, a whole other conversation. <laughs> But um, like you said, it's kind of difficult for comparison purposes until get them in 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 hand and get and to actually benchmarks or something. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, based on what Apple presented, like just back to my initial comment about like I think that the prime switchers are going to be M1 people. Uh, but yeah, the Pro and the Max, the Max is 
that's quite a chip. Um, I mean, I, there's no ultra, right? Which is kind of like, I mean, maybe they're reserving that for the the, the pro tower, right? Because mm-hmm. it's going to be even crazier. Um, but some people have speculated that the M3 Max might outperform the M2 Ultra that's in the Mac Pro Tower right now. I have seen that suggestion on Twitter a number of times since the Apple event, and it's a, it'll be interesting to quantify that when it's possible. The one thing that I got excited about was, uh, you know, kind of wrapping up this whole Apple stuff. Um, is is kind of the space black like obviously you know some people have had hands-on limited amount of time with them but it do seem to hide fingerprints pretty well which is a big claim but you know i love that they of course only made that available on the pro and the max model. oh of course it's so yeah. apple <laughs> yes and it, it looks great i mean i no notes you know that's that's exactly what that machine i want it so bad like. but there's no way Absolutely. i'm spending that kind of money i don't uh, need it it's like you know, I've, I don't know if it's been the same with you as you're, you know, I've, we've both been in this business for decades, but it's like, do you feel that like, I'm, I'm looking at things every time I, I have that craving, I'm like, oh yeah. And I'm realizing, you know, in a year there'll be something better. Like, why would I spend money on this? I don't need it right now. Right. It, it's gone to a point where there was a time in history of tech when I was like, I need this. And I knew I needed this. Like when the, the original Apple Silicon macbook air came out i bought it instantly right because i knew but like this like it's really hard for me to go to a a lot of people like why don't you have a macbook pro you're kind of pretty heavy duty i'm like i don't need it the reality is i just don't need it i i have more i have two more macs than i need because i need one and i have three and i can't i i'm i'm with you i can't justify the price to get a to get a space black one but I sure want one. Any Mm. other final thoughts um, before we start talking about where the M3 fits in with the announcement from Qualcomm last week? Oh boy. I mean, yeah, I guess as a lead in comment, uh, just between the work Apple has done and what what Qualcomm appears to do, it seems like we are entering a renaissance for ARM-based PCs and Macs. It's just all quite exciting, isn't it? Oh my God. I am so happy. You know, the ARM revolution is happening. It's happening on the server side too, in data centers. And we're now seeing, you know, on-device AI really being a priority, like whether it's the uh, M3 Apple Silicon, we're seeing that there. We're see- Although Apple is not really talking about it as much, um, there's already rumors of people with devices that have been able to run some large language models uh, very effectively on this new chip. Uh, so on on-device AI, uh, generative AI. Um, so obviously, you know, this arm revolution, you know, is got me super excited and it's continuing. And, and, you know, as I said, yeah, I've got wishful thinking for a 12 inch MacBook um, retina again, but I don't think it's going to happen. But if, if anybody at Apple's listening, you know, the, the road warrior amongst us would really love something like that. Just add another USB port on the other side, maybe. And uh, with two ports is fine. Put 5G in there since your chips could do 5G uh, or, or add a Qualcomm modem maybe since you're doing that with iPhones right now. Anyway, I, you know, I, I don't want to 
burnout sales. Let's talk about X Elite versus M3, or rather how it fits in, because while there is this revolution, right, Apple's able to do it because of this beautiful vertical integration they have, where it's easy for them in a way. Like, I, I don't think want to make it sound trivial. Like, when I run an emulated Intel app on my Mac, and it's seamless and runs faster than on my Intel Macs, it's not trivial, and I recognize that, and I'm amazed with that. We, but we need that from Microsoft. We need that from HP, from, you know, Dell, from the partners. They're all on the slide, but are they going to deliver? That's my big question, you know? Like, this ARM revolution is nice, but if not everybody's on board, then we're not going to get anywhere. Yeah, the Snapdragon x Elite, that was, uh, that was a really, really interesting announcement. You and I were both on hand for it. In terms of where it fits in with Apple's announcement, I does it really are there a lot of people I that think, are gonna make the jump or i, I think, I think this we're is... gonna look at performance as somewhere around m1 to m2 possibly close to m2 which is great mm -hmm. but the question is that only is going to happen when microsoft optimizes windows has a proper emulator in there that runs the legacy apps because that's you know, B2B wants that. Like, that's a thing for the industry out there, for the in enterprise. And then finally, you know, we need, and this is the problem, I'm seeing this parallel here between the EV car industry, the legacy car makers and EVs, and the HPs and Dells and Asus's of the world and the Lenovo's and the Intel relationship. You know, they are so intertwined and so cautious about pulling away from that partnership because it's their bread and butter. It's like gasoline cars for Ford and GM. Like I am absolutely certain that Ford is 100% on board with EVs. They've shown that they can do it. They are one of the best at it in North America right now. But they are pulling back right now because they're looking at the economics and going, we're selling more gas cars and, you know, even though the prices of gas are high, blah, blah, blah. Like why, you know, this is our bread and butter. And I'm like, this is not the solution. Like you, you need, they, somebody, some, one of the big car makers need to jump in and say, we're going full electric. It's happening. Yeah. No, that's like, an interesting parallel. I don't parallel. see that happening, but I think like if HP or Dell or I think Lenovo would be in a great position to do it because they can get subsidies potentially from the Chinese government to do it. Well, and they have such a huge uh, channel relationship with large, large enterprises that don't buy, you know, thousands of machines. They buy tens of thousands of machines right. in one go. And that's, I mean, that's enough in some cases to sort of justify. But I guess back to your point around, you know, Microsoft or, or Windows on ARM or however you'd like to refer to all that. There was some commentary down in Hawaii, but there was some maybe more interesting commentary yesterday on Qualcomm's quarterly call. And Cristiano characterized Qualcomm as a new player in the PC space, which you think, well, that's an interesting thing to say, given that you've had three generations of compute right? platforms prior to Does it mean you weren't taking it seriously before? <laughs> I think it means, I think it means, here's how I'm choosing to interpret it is okay. that, 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 that he sees the ecosystem as there. I mean, they have that longstanding relationship with Microsoft. There is that sort of link into the ISV community. There are those uh, optimizations around the experience that you'll see the emulation 32 versus 64, notwithstanding, but I take that as a, you know, a pretty confident signal 
to the market, to the investor market, that that they're really ready to play and they're ready ready to play big time in PC, which, you know, if we go back to Maui, it's a very performant chipset. This is a very I mean, for for if I wouldn't say it's not a first try, but it is because of the Nubia team that they acquired, right? So I think I think that I'm I'm impressed, but I I will not really truly rest until I get a machine from Lenovo. I fire it up and it just works like my Mac, right? Like it it's it feels like I'm not sacrificing anything because I have a beautiful Microsoft Surface Pro X here. I just updated the software on it because I hadn't used it in a year or two, and I was like, oh hey, it's the original. It's not the the newer one. But I love the form factor, and I was like, oh let's fire it up again. And you know it's it's so janky, like. You know, it's, I want to love it because I'm ultra mobile and because I'm, you know, I'm a believer in ARM, but man, like we cannot have that experience. We cannot have that experience. Yeah. I was playing with a a Galaxy Book 2 the other day that I hadn't turned on in a year and I got it all updated and uh, that didn't- It took a day to update that thing. Didn't solve (laughs) any of my underlying complaints about the the device. And I mean, I don't know, so many thoughts about X-Elite. You mentioned the Nuvia team. Um, you know, we're so used to these like, you know, architectural diagrams of CPUs that that really drive home the point that, okay, you have a big little configuration or you have a high a performance core and an efficiency core configuration. And uh, with Qualcomm uh, and the X Elite, that wasn't really the case. And I, I guess I would shout out uh, an interview that Ian Cutris did with uh, Gerard Williams. I haven't had a chance to the, watch it yet, but I'm super keen on watching that. Yeah. I'll put a link in, mean, the, in the note guys. Yeah. yeah. It, really, really interesting. And I, I mean, he kind of makes the point that his focus is, is strictly on efficiency of the core and that high performance flows from that efficiency focus. And, and he said that there is no distinction. None of them are performance cores. None of them are efficiency cores. They're all the same core. It's like, so, let's, this is really interesting. Like I'm going to do a little tangent here because I'm an engineer, right? My background's electrical engineering. Now I'm not in any way going to claim that I understand and know anything about chip, modern chip design, but I know in, essentially enough about electrical engineering to know one thing. And, and I'm really curious what we're going to see from MediaTek next week or the week after, whenever the summit is coming up, I'm going to that. Um, you know, I think this big little efficiency, you know, performance, I think that's not the solution. That's like having, the analogy I can make is, imagine you have one of those lamps that has, you know, three settings, right? Like you turn it on, it's dim. You know, the medium setting is a little brighter. There's a, medium, a third setting, it's a little brighter, and you turn it off again. You know, those are, this is done with resistors, right? It's old school. Uh, there are some LED bulbs today that detect the difference in voltage from, from the drop-down resistor and adjust the brightness level to match instead of flickering and doing stuff, right? Because it's, it's like there's tons of old lamps that have that feature versus a modern dimmer, you know, that pulse width modulates just like the backlight on your displays um, uh, on, on a LCD or the OLED uh, dimming that happens on a phone. That's pulse with modulation. And it's a technique that's been around forever. The reason it's efficient is because you're literally turning on maximum brightness very briefly with a pause in between the spikes. And it averages out to the brightness you want, but 
it is much more efficient. You're not heating up these mm -hmm. resistors. You're just actually just using power when you need it. Now, hear me out. This is an analogy I'm making for the audience because I think where we're going, and we started seeing that with the dynamic caching on M3, where we're going is a dynamic PWM on, on performance or big cores. We're going to a place where, like in 5G, IoT is using 5G not because they have to send a lot of data, but because in a single burst of data, they can send the entire payload of data very efficiently with microscopic amperage use on the battery or the power supply of this temperature sensor out in a cornfield somewhere or moisture sensor. You know what I'm saying? You've, you you yeah. follow that stuff. Oh yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. I mean, you just uh, I, I think you know IoT has always struggled with fragmentation, and five G was meant to be sort of the you know grand unifying theory, and it hasn't happened yet, but it's it's slowly happening. A lot of interesting stuff going on with RedCap. That's exactly to your point. Just absolute. What is the most efficiency? I can get for the performance that I need and how can I dynamically control that? And just the, again, haven't gone hands-on. We did a little bit of benchmarking in yeah, Hawaii, but so far looks really compelling. It, it looks and I would, good. But I'm wondering if the question we're going to ask, and I think it'll be really interesting to see what MediaTek does here. Um, and maybe they'll do something like it. Who knows? M the question to ask is, if you have an efficiency or a, or a little core and you fire it up, you know, for a task, is it less efficient than using a big or, you know, performance core and bursting it, like pulse widths modulating it, essentially? That is the question we need to answer. And my gut feeling as an engineer is that we didn't quite have the scheduling tools um, to schedule the you know, instructions and data flow in the chips to make that work. And now we do. And that might be part of what the trick that Nuvia has that makes this X Elite possible. And it's possible that Apple is there already too. And, and you know, that we're seeing still some uh, efficiency or little cores in their design because it's kind of still there from, you know, they started a while back. But I'll, I'd be really, I have a gut feeling that we're going to see more of this clever bursting of high performance cores on these machines. Yeah. Well, I mean, to the media tech piece, we'll, we'll find out. I'll, I'll be down there in Dana Point or wherever it is in Orange County that, that, that summit's being hosted. But just, you know, you mentioned, you know, what we see with Apple now. And I would point out that the, the visionary behind Snapdragon X Elite former Apple chip architect, and before that, an ARM distinguished fellow. So I, I kind of feel like to your, your point of maybe <laughs> this is where we're going of a kind of a blurred line between what's what, what does what it's about. You know, it's about a, a heterogeneity, like across the different cores. And that kind of ties into Qualcomm's sort of value statement that cuts across their their product lines, which is just we do low power connected processing very very well. Um, yeah. So we'll see what goes, but I am very gung ho. I think there's still a lot of runway for ARM, um, and you know, Intel needs to get their you know crap together and give us an ARM chip if they want to stay relevant. I know that's heresy in their world, but they need to freaking get off this religious high horse of theirs with x86. There's no reason two of them can't coexist. Why Why can't continue making x86? It's just like the electric car makers. Make hybrids. 
Like just also make good battery EVs. Some people still need hybrids. Okay, it's cool. It's fine. Mm -hmm. Like I'm not a personally as a car enthusiast a big fan of hybrids, but they're freaking efficient and they've gotten really okay enough to drive that it's not a horrible experience anymore. So you know, yeah, I don't know. That's kind of where I'm at. <laughs> Ah, let's anything else on Snapdragon X Elite. Um, you know, I, I think we we referenced that Qualcomm has had these three iterations of the compute platform and they all had the built-in connectivity piece, the built-in modem RF system, and that was really when 5G was front and center on the messaging. With X Elite, that's optional for the OEMs, whether they include an X65 or not. I'll be curious to see what happens in the market, but I imagine most of them will opt not to. Yeah. We'll see. I'm really excited to see what happens in six months when X Elite comes out with devices. But more important, I think I'm sure we're going to see that around Computex. But I, I think that I'm also worried that they're at that point, you know, like they're going to be perceived as behind again because M3 will, you know, M3 is shipping this week or next week or whatever, like. It's coming now. Um, let's switch to some phones and things related to this. Obviously, Qualcomm announced the 8 Gen 3 last week, the, the mobile chip. And, um, you know, I did a podcast in the pool in Hawaii with a bunch of folks last week. It was really fun. Um, first time we did a poolside podcast, it went super well. I used some AI audio cleaning tools. I didn't have to do much cleaning. You know, I, I'm good enough at setting up a good recording in the first place. But being able to just really focus on the the four people there and myself rather than the other voices behind ai is amazing at that and it did a good job with it i use a tool called ophonic au phonic and uh it is really it's for pros it's not a simple tool to use but it's really incredible um it's online it's in the cloud check it out um, it's not something that lets you fully edit audio, all the features of an audio editor. It's specifically, you want to clean up audio, upload a file, play with all the knobs and sliders and see what IAI can do and you get a result. And then if you want to, you can process it and you have something like two free hours a month and then you can subscribe to get more time. I, I, you know, they're not sponsoring me, but they have been instrumental. There's a lot of podcasts you've listened to on my show in the last three months where I've used this tool to rescue recordings and generally speaking to enhance the audio of my work. So AI for the win. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Xiaomi 14 Pro was announced at the uh, summit last week in Hawaii, but we now have hands-on Ben Sin, the awesome Ben Sin of XDA, who also has, you know, uh, the, the incredible YouTube channel, he uh, got his hands on the, the 14 Pro in, in Hong Kong through Trinity Electronics, everybody's favorite importer. If you're ever in Hong Kong, you need to go see Trinity. It's, it's, it's a hallelujah moment. You, you get any phone that, all the phones you've ever dreamed of exist there and for you to buy. Um, and so he has a good relationship with them. I think they either he bought it or they lent, let him borrow it for a while. And so we have a hands-on. I'll put the YouTube video in the show notes. Check it out. It's really good. What was really interesting here for me was the uh, amazing camera system, uh, especially the fact that there's a couple of things going on here. First of all, there's a variable aperture from f over 1.4 to f over 4, which is kind of insane. But that's not the first time we've done variable aperture, but this is a multi-step, I think 1024 step, which is completely overkill, really. Like you probably only need two intermediate steps at, between those two values. Like if it was going up to F20 or something, I'd say, okay. But uh, uh, it's still very impressive because the F01.4, wow, that's a lot of light. That's a lot of bokeh too, but it's not a one inch sensor. It's 
I think, and it's apparently not a Sony a Sony Litia sensor. It is a somewhat unknown sensor, and it's got some weird, funny name like Lightsaber Nine Hundred or something. Watch a video; I can't remember right now, but it's hilarious, and uh, we don't know what it is. I think when they finally announce this product officially, we'll find out more. Uh, but I am in, intrigued because I feel like this replacing large one-inch sensors with slightly smaller, you know, l take up less space, make for a thinner Z stack. So now you can maybe add that that iris, right, and that mm -hmm. space you saved uh, to get the aperture. I think this is great. Like I am really looking forward to it. And of course, stop around a Gen three, so it's going to be fun to try out, right? That's right. And and I thought it was interesting that that there's not going to be this big wait where usually we get the the flagship SOC from Qualcomm and then have to wait around for six or seven weeks until a phone is available. Now we've got one already with the 14 series. And uh, I checked out Ben's video and I saw some of his some of his photos online and kind of picked up on some of the complaints about like low light particularly seemed like it stood out to him in his in his hands-on which is interesting because the gen ai of it all you know that's the big upgrade for 8 gen 3 is the you know hexagon npu right and then yeah how and that kind of ties mm -hmm. that's right goes into the other subsystems and what that's going to bring to your to your camera experience so it's interesting to me that that was the lead of the messaging and that was the first thing that Ben noticed not maybe being as good as it could be, but again, very early. Well, also he's comparing it to a masterpiece of a phone, right? The the Xiaomi 13 Ultra from last year with one inch sensor with variable aperture, two steps, right? Like it's it's like comparing like the best phone of imaging from last <laughs> year with a phone that's not just an Ultra, it's a pro. It's not supposed to be the best Xiaomi is gonna offer. Um, I've got the 13 Pro from last year with the one inch sensor, but without the variable aperture and it's a masterpiece itself. So like, you know, and also this is China only we're for now, we're going to get a global version of this, but I don't think we're going to see it until December or at the earliest at this point, um, based on the past. Xiaomi is always pretty much launched within, it feels like days, if not maybe weeks at most from the Snapdragon new chip announcement every year, right? For mm -hmm. the flagship. Actually, for most Snapdragon chips, in fact, like they've always been the first with seven gens and and others too, right? So, um, and related to that, Vivo is coming out with a phone, uh, the X100 series, or maybe just the regular X100, we're not sure. The X series is their flagship imaging line, just like Xiaomi, there's a generally a, a regular model and a pro and, and sometimes a pro plus, which would be like equivalent of ultra for xiaomi this is the vivo x100 so november 13 set your clocks if you're uh, gonna you know if you live in a market i know a lot of my audiences in india and stuff um and in asia where you can get the vivo x series because they're amazing phones if you can get your hands on one to try it out sean try they're, they're just incredible it's it, i i think kind of like i call vivo the kind of problem child in the bbk group not because they're problematic per se but because they kind of have their own mind and they do their own thing. Um, in that sense, they might be a bit of a problem for the BBK group because they're just not beating to the same drum as Oppo, Realme, OnePlus is, you know. But mm -hmm. they do some crazy, some crazy ass good stuff. So uh, I'm excited to see this. I'm also last year they did the regular as a MediaTek Dimensity phone, and then the Pro as a Qualcomm uh, Snapdragon phone. So. 
I want to see what happens because this is very close in timing to the uh, MediaTek Summit. So this could be the announcement of the non-pro that's a MediaTek fund. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if history repeats itself and that pattern continues with this uh, latest from MediaTek. For sure. I am, regardless of what they come out with, looking forward to it. Speaking also of imaging, like I'm going through the imaging thing because I want to talk to you about imaging as kind of our final topic. Uh, OnePlus 12 rumors to be featuring another or maybe even a new Sony Litia a pixel stacked sensor that's the sensor that i was just mentioning instead of a one inch you have like a, a half size of that so like one over 1.3 or 1.4 1.5 inch sensor takes about half the surface area on the board um, but it captures just as much light we've seen this on the oneplus open um, it seems very effective. Um, Sony, we can trust Sony with, with their camera sensors. The Litia line is brand new and it seems to be replacing the IMX line at the high end uh, as a stacked technology. And I would be surprised if they're going to pump out some new sensors. And they've traditionally, like for Xiaomi and Vivo and Oppo slash OnePlus, have made custom versions of their uh, sensors for these new phones. So we could see a completely new Sony Litia sensor for the OnePlus 12, or we can see a revised version of something even a bit more beefy than what we had on OnePlus Open. In which case, I'm asking you the question, OnePlus 12 doesn't say Pro behind it. Will we see a Pro this year, you think? And if not, how are they going to keep the price in check? Because that's the thing that makes a OnePlus a OnePlus. Other than the lack of wireless charging, the OnePlus 11 5G last year was amazing and price-wise was really competitive. So will we see the Pro this year? What's the, what's the date for the 12? Do we, we know, know that yet? We don't know. Yeah. So I don't know. I guess once there's a date to the 12, it'll be easier to, so, to guess so if there's going to be a Pro. But I have a crazy theory like, and I want you to tell me how crazy my theory is. <laughs> sure. <laughs> You be the judge. My theory is this. We're going to get a OnePlus 12 and a OnePlus 12 Pro this year. And they're going to be completely a match for the Oppo Find X, what is it, 7 and X7 Pro, the, the, the new flagship from, from Oppo. What happens is normally Oppo gets the best stuff and then OnePlus kind of gets a bit of a second best. And, uh, but now that they're kind of seemingly sharing phones i don't know if it's going to be reserved to their folding phones the sharing but if it's not it's possible that we get the oneplus 12 in north america and then oppo gets the essentially 12 pro version and the regular 12 for the other markets or mostly china or maybe india or something because that way you can keep the price in check and mm -hmm. you can still get a really solid phone like if they added wireless charging to the 11 and gave it a slightly better camera and still priced it like $799-ish, it would fly for the OnePlus fans. They don't have carrier relationships anymore except for the Nord series, right, in North America. So I don't that's think right. that's coming back. They blew it, right? Like, you know, I'm excited about the OnePlus 12 and related to that, the OnePlus Open gained pen support, which I thought was like interesting because they never mentioned it. Well, why not mention it? I think maybe they 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 got the feedback. They got the the feedback from the market. I mean, that's I, I guess 
you know, do do most people who have foldables want a pin? I don't well, know the answer to that. In, why don't you tell it's available? Yeah. It's, it's supported. And yes, you know, if there's enough demand, we'll, we'll, we'll make a pen. Or in this case, you can use the OnePlus Pads pen. So, mm. you know, buy the OnePlus Pad pen as an accessory. It's available in the U.S. store, so... Yeah, I um. Well, first, where do you fall on that when you're using a, a foldable device? I don't care. Device, I don't use do the pen, yeah. but I support okay. people who do, and I want them to have their pen. You know what I'm saying? It's like I love that the Galaxy Note and the Galaxy S Ultra series have merged, right? Because like I'm not, I don't care about the pen, but I understand how so many people came back to the S Ultra series from being Note users, and why shouldn't have their pen with their pen silo? Good for you. Do it. <laughs> 100%. I think of the S Ultra series as the kitchen sink of Android phones. Like, I love that about them. They, they, there's not a single thing left unturned. They're like, oh, Features. you want that feature? Check. You want that feature? Okay, check. It's like the only thing we're missing on a Samsung Galaxy S Ultra of some kind right now is a headphone jack to just completely <laughs> give us the complete experience, right? That's never going to happen. But hey. So, yeah. Let's talk about AI photography real quick because I'm, I'm a little concerned. You wrote a, a nice, really cool story yeah. on LinkedIn about this. Yeah, I, I struggle with this. There's, there is a line there and I just don't know where it is. Maybe for context, you know, my, before I got into to tech journalism, I was just, a, you know, I worked for the Miami Herald company as a, just a journalist covering land use and environmental policy and, there's a big emphasis on on not just photography, but photography that was of a good quality, but not photography that needed to be post-processed to make it put into a format that you could publish. It was meant to show imperfections. And that's maybe the the point was to show things as they were as accurately as you can. I think there's a whole philosophical debate. Like once you choose to take a picture, you have chosen just even by virtue You've of the composition, poison, you've made some right? choice. Yes. Yes. I feel like I compose and think about my shots a lot, especially when it's not something like where I have to snap a bunch of kids running around or something. And I, and, and I accept some flaws that I see in the viewfinder. Like, I am also happy that there are some tools that let me remove the ones I don't want in my viewfinder, but I don't have time to stick around and remove. But I start getting iffy about it because I look at photos of me as a kid that my family took. And the you remember the Instagram vibe we all got from this imperfection initially? I mean, Probably kids these days don't even remember what Instagram was like originally. <laughs> like Instagram was iPhone only. It was only about photos and it was only square form factor. And it was about the filters, about the experience of taking a Polaroid, basically, with the kind of imperfections of a Polaroid. It was kind of leaning on the fact that phones back then weren't really that great at taking photos. So now it wasn't perfect. And I'm glad we've evolved past that. Am I happy with reels and all that? Not really. But the point is, I look at my old photos of as a kid, right? And, and there are people in the background. Imagine if you magic erase all these people out. Then you don't see the outfits from the 90s and the 80s. You don't see the cars. You don't see the, you don't get that vibe. You don't get that, this is what it was like. You don't get that snapshot of the moment. 
Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's about, I guess it's about what you want to remember, or it, maybe even if you take memory out of it, it's about what you want to encapsulate and show. And, you know, to, to the Gen AI point, God, early days of Instagram, you remember when you got a really good shot from your camera in your phone, you would put hashtag no filter on there because the assumption, assumption yeah. is that, that there is a filter and now we're going to you know, get to this boring dystopian future. Hashtag where it's like no hashtag, gen AI. Yeah, that's <laughs> Sorry, exactly that right. Out of your mouth. <laughs> it's, that's, that's it though. And, and I just, you know, there was some, maybe beyond the scope of the conversation, but some interesting tools baked in to Snapdragon 8 Gen 3 that would show you the, the provenance of the, you know, the metadata of an image. When was it modified by gen AI? And I think, well, you know, that's good and that's important that they're doing it, but the people, most people are not going to care about right. that Well, that's why all. the Leica camera that you can spend $9,000 on does this at production time, because if yeah. you're a photojournalist today, this is going to become a real thing, right? Like... Of course, we. I want to see Canon and Nikon DSLRs do that. But before Nikon and Canon actually even implement this feature, we need them to add USB-C charging to their DSLRs, which the <laughs> European Union is going to mandate very soon. Otherwise, they won't be able to sell these machines anymore, and we won't have any DSLRs with an actual mechanical shutter. That's a whole different conversation that I read an article about on this week. But you make a good point, and the good point is... is Yes, you can add that authenticity stamp, like, what is it called? There's a name for it. Uh, True pick. That's it. There's also another one called, open source one called CR. Uh, C2PA. Uh, yeah. Anyway, the point is, I'm on board with that, but the cameras need to generate that data because that's, that, then it becomes useful. You know? mm -hmm. And then you have a history of the edits, uh, kind of more or less. And I think that helps, for, especially for contexts like photojournalism, right? Like when you're reporting about the war that's happening in the Middle East right now, you, you know, propaganda is going nuts on both sides right now. And, and it's like, what's real? Like with a Gen AI, what's real? Like, so if you have a photo from AP or from like, you know, some major news organization that says, you know, we took this and here's, you can see in the metadata, all the history of the edits, right? That's, that's, mm -hmm. that's awesome. That's awesome, and I'm glad it's accessible. And I, I just hope that I hope that as mainstream as Gen AI is going to be, I, I hope that the understanding of the context of when and how it was used is also concurrently mainstream. Because I think that's that's very important to preserving to pre preserving authenticity. Which you know, it, it's great to deviate from that and to have fun and be creative. But there's you know, it's obviously going to be weaponized. It's already being weaponized. So well, I mean, it's it just yeah. gotta you gotta have a knowledgeable consumer market, and they have to have access to and and the desire to actually get into the metadata and, and see what is and what is not real. Otherwise, yeah, it we're, needs we're to be kind of like, you know, when Twitter was still Twitter before it got turned into crap, uh, when uh, it would warn you, it'd say, you know, this, this, or like YouTube does when you go to like a, a 9-11 video, right? Or it tell you mm -hmm. this, like the context, right? I think stuff like that would really help. But I'm also, you know, I'm not against it either because like, look, oftentimes I've taken a photo four by three, right? 
and I need to use it in a video as a thumbnail. And I go, oh man, now I need to crop this photo and the phone doesn't fully fit in the shot because like a product shot I took, right? Because my, my, my stories, my, my writing photos need to be four by three, but my, my video stuff needs, so now I need to do two sets and I forget or I don't. And then now I can expand. I can go like, you know, take that photo, crop properly at four three the way I like it and create some stuff that's blurred in the background like the rest uh. of the blurry background that's generic enough that it'll look good at the thumbnail on my YouTube video. That is where Gen AI shines and I'm not against Gen AI because of it. I'm not even against Magic Eraser. As I said, there are some situations, I've literally stood there in, in a public place, waited for the right moment where there was the least amount of people in the shot just to get that shot because Magic Eraser isn't perfect. It leaves like stuff behind. Whereas I think the new stuff is better. So I'm, in, I'm welcoming some of these tools, but at the same time, also, as I said, I'm worried about losing that, the vibe of the moment. The concept that a photo reflects not just reality, which is important in some contexts, because it's still a creative process. So filtering is okay, but reflects a vibe, a moment. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. You're making me think back to maybe some early pixel marketing and it was it was something to the effect of like you're not taking a picture, you're 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 capturing a memory. And you know, our memories always perfect are they always accurate you know of course not and and I think that's just a it's a very interesting conversation and it's going to I think be had in the the you know general public discourse very soon. I, I certainly hope it happens very soon because it needs to because the technology is for sale. Absolutely, we could go on about this for a long time, but unfortunately, we have to wrap up. Do you want to tell folks, Sean, where they can find you on the internet, where you write, your social media accounts, whatever is relevant that people can find you? Yeah, check me out on Twitter, or I'm sorry, on X at uh, Sean Kenny RCR. Uh, follow along RCR. You know, we don't necessarily get deep, deep into the devices, but we get deep, deep into the networks and the technology that make those devices work. And that's why I, I was really glad to have this conversation with you. I think I spend so much time with cloud companies and infrastructure companies and mobile network operators, and we talk about their KPIs. This is what it looks like when the network is working correctly. This is, you know, my proof point is around my TCO reduction. You know, okay, that's all fine if that's what you're interested in, but for real people, the device is the proxy for the network. And if you're not having the device experience that you want to have, then the network's not doing what it needs to do regardless of the KPIs. But if you want to understand that full continuum, check us out, rcrwireless.com. A great resource to have because, you know, if you are especially, you know, want to keep tabs of what's going on in the industry, I love reading it. And uh, I'll, I'll link to your story about the X-Elite there. And of course, your LinkedIn story on the, uh, the photography AI dilemma, as it were. Folks, you know where to find me on the internet. I'm at Tankerl, that's T-N-K-G-R-L, like the comic book character Tankerl. Just drop all the vowels. That's my handle on Twitter X slash uh, Instagram slash thread slash Blue Sky, where I'm mostly prevalent right now. Uh, you can also find the podcast at mobiletechpodcast.com or on all the major platforms, YouTube Music, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, etc. Please like the podcast or rate the podcast or you know write a review, whatever your app lets you do, they would help. And then uh, if you want to see some video content, there's a YouTube channel, youtube.com slash 
Mobile Tech Podcast. I've got the OnePlus Open unboxing. I finally got to edit my video I recorded at the OnePlus event a month ago, even though my review on hot hardware was published a while back. So if you want to see me unbox the phone and check it out, you know, high res, go and check out the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash mobile tech podcast. Also, uh, Instagram, as I said, is, uh, is a great place for photos. I still use it as a photo place. So check out photos of my devices, my, my cars for that I'm reviewing and, and travel photos and, and food photos and stuff like that. And then uh, you want something a little extra, perhaps, and you want to support me more actively. There's a Patreon, patreon.com slash tankrl. That's patreon.com slash tnkgrl. There's a video version of the podcast you can get ahead of time, like a day or two usually ahead of time, that has extra content. We've gone over time, so I'll probably put some more stuff in there this week. So hopefully you sign up. There is other perks there as well, like access to the Discord server. But if you want a video version, that's definitely what people seem to like the most and if you join the patreon you can get that and help me out which i would appreciate if you also want to help me out just a one-time thing or whatever you just want to maybe you don't like patreon that's fair there's a link in the show notes you can click through it make a donation with paypal and i'd appreciate that as well on that note i want to thank our sponsor infineon Infineon technologies is a global semiconductor leader in power systems and iot and on a drive towards decarbonization and digitalization together with its ecosystem partners. In this episode, the company dives into some of the demonstrations highlighted at their signature October Tech event in Silicon Valley. And I want to thank you, Sean, for being my guest this week. Thanks so much for coming on and nerding out about all things mobile. I really enjoyed it, Miriam. I appreciate the invitation. I love the show. So thanks uh, for having me on. Absolutely. We'll have you on some point in the future again. And folks, we'll have another show next week. So stay tuned for that. Until then, cheers, everybody. This has been the Mobile Tech Podcast with Tank Girl, proudly presented by worldpodcasts.com. You can visit us online at mobiletechpodcast.com.